Amen. Will you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel 24? We continue our study in the life of King David. David has already been anointed to succeed uh, King Saul, who lost his kingdom because he disobeyed God's command, and yet Saul's still going to be king for a time, and it's a period of many years while God is preparing David to receive the kingdom. And God's preparation of David includes Saul seeking again and again to take David's life, and David's faith, and David's faith especially in God's promise, is going to be stretched and tested again and again. Now, last chapter, we saw Saul almost caught David, but God sent an unlikely rescuer in the form of the Philistines. Now the Philistines have been dealt with, and Saul can once again fix his attention on his obsession of getting David. Listen now to God's word, 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a, a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed his, with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I haven't sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. 
And you've declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore thus to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. Uh, one of the aspects of studying the scriptures that's particularly enjoyable is studying etymology. Now, if you're thinking that means that I enjoy the study of insects, you're dead wrong. That's entomology. Etymology is the origin of words and phrases. And so as you work through the scriptures and translate from the original language into English, oftentimes you can pick up on different nuances that the English language doesn't necessarily bring out. That's true with words, but it's also true with phrases. And so you've often heard me reference the origin of phrases. Um, Open a can of worms. Do you know the origin of that phrase? It was from uh, back in olden days when uh, fishing worms, when, when night crawlers came in a can and you would open the top of the can, but you couldn't put the top back on, and so the worms would go everywhere once you opened it. Or a phrase like, turn a blind eye. Do you know the origin of that phrase? It goes back to the British naval hero, Horatio Nelson. And back in 1801's Battle of Copenhagen, Nelson's ships were pitted against the large Danish-Norwegian fleet, and his superior gave him the signal to withdraw. But Nelson, who only had one eye, brought his telescope up to his bad eye and proclaimed, I don't see the signal. He turned a blind eye to it and he scored a victory. What about the saying, cutting corners? You think it might have come from David's actions here of cutting the corner of Saul's robe? Well, I was absolutely determined to find some link between these two things and even Mr. Google could not prove any link between them. But the idea of cutting corners is the exact temptation that's before David here. God has promised David the throne. David knows that God's promises cannot fail. Yet sometimes God's promises don't work on the same calendar that we do. Historically, God's people have had trouble with cutting corners rather than trusting promises. We call it pragmatism when we do what seems practical rather than what is obedient. You think of Abraham, he grew impatient of waiting on the child of promise, so he took matters into his own hands with his wife's servant, Hagar. Of course, that created tremendous conflict in the household. When God freed his people, when he delivered them from Egyptian bondage and then gave them the land west of the Jordan, several of the tribes as they were traveling, saw the lush, fertile land east of the Jordan. And they asked if they could settle there. And so Gad and Manasseh and Reuben settled east of the Jordan. And they were conquered in 740 B.C., in part because they were on their own. They were cut off from the other tribes that could help protect them. 
Or when Israel was entering into the promised land, God told them they were to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. But they cut corners. They left several tribes, including the Philistines, who would be their archenemy for hundreds of years. Scripture teaches us again and again that when God's people cut corners, it always produces hardship. But obedience to God, though more difficult in the short term, eventually produces blessing. So as David endures difficult years of waiting for God to give him the promised kingdom, God is teaching David to walk the long winding road toward the fulfillment of God's promises rather than cutting corners. And it was in this time that David learned to wait on God's timing, to rest in God's promises, and to trust in God's providence. As we look in this passage, we're going to work through it really verse by verse, but it it breaks into three sections. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, we can call the providentially hindered pursuit. Verses 8 to 15, David's plea for reconciliation. And then verses 16 to 22 are Saul's selfish request. So let's look at this first section, verses 1 to 7. Saul's once again pursuing David with the intent of killing him. Now, Saul has every advantage. He's on the offensive. He's got the greater army. And nearly every city is scared to harbor David, lest Saul come and destroy him like he did Nob. But it's been one embarrassment after another for Saul as David and his ragtag band of debtors and miscreants that we met back in chapter 22 have eluded Saul at every turn. Well, now Saul's not playing around anymore. So verse 2 says that Saul took 3,000 chosen men. These are the elites, the military elites of Israel. He's willing to deplete all his military forces to focus them on one goal, and that is to kill David. David's been hiding out in the wilderness of Engedi. In verse 3, the king is on the hunt for David, and we're told Saul steps into a cave to relieve himself. Now, it's possible that that's language, we really don't know exactly how to translate it. It's possible that's language of taking a rest. It's common in the heat of midday to, to step into a cave to get shade and to rest, but it's also a, a euphemism for going to the restroom. Now, we don't know which it was, but Saul happens to step into the nearest cave to relieve himself. And as his eyes are getting adjusted to the dark, he can't see that the cave he happened to choose is the same cave that David and his men happened to be waiting in. Now, none of this, of course, happened by coincidence, but by providence. Again and again, David has been learning the lesson, the difficult lesson, to see all of life, even the most minute and seemingly inconsequential things of life, through the lens of God's providence, that even to this extent of this question of relieving himself, is under the sovereign providence of God. At the same time, we have to learn to try not to interpret God's providence. And what we mean by interpreting God's providence is when we look at something and say, well, this happened, that must mean God wants me to do such and such. And, and, and at times it does But many times it doesn't. We see that here. It's a funny scene as David and his men are inside the cave and Saul has come in and they're trying to figure out. They know, David and his men know that the king and his men are out there looking and they see somebody come in, but they don't realize probably at first that it's Saul. And and then they realize it. And you can imagine the whispers, David, David, 
This is perfect. Here's your chance. That's what they say in verse 4. Here's the day of, the, of which the Lord's spoken. In other words, David, this is clearly the will of God. Because look how it just fell in your lap. Can't you see God's providence? Now, we don't know exactly what they're talking about when they say, here is the day of which the Lord has spoken. They may be speaking about David receiving the kingdom by killing Saul. They may be talking about David being uh, told back in chapter 23 that God would deliver the Philistines into his hand. And so if the Philistines were his enemy, then so much more is Saul his enemy. So surely this is the will of God. Now, David has a dilemma. Do I cut corners because God's providence seemed to be working out that way, or do I wait and trust the word of God? David knows that to kill Saul would not only violate the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, but it would be a front, an affront to God for killing the Lord's anointed. That's one of the things we've been learning throughout Samuel. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 2. That beautiful, sanctified, godly prayer that Hannah prayed. Uh, Hannah's got to be one of the godliest people we meet in Scripture. But to go back to to verse 7 of her prayer. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. David understands that if he's to assume the throne, it must be God's sovereign movement. God must do it. And then look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. David settles here, even in the moment in the cave, that he can't strike against the Lord's anointed. He knows that even though Saul is a bad king, and even though the Lord's spirit has departed from Saul, Saul is nevertheless the Lord's anointed. David knows that if he wants to please God, then he must continue to trust in and rest in God's timing to receive the kingdom. He could have even kept his hands clean while letting his men kill Saul. But according to verse 7, he persuaded. That word there can even mean he used violent threats against his men to prevent them from killing Saul. Matthew Henry says, David had a fair opportunity to destroy Saul, and to his honor, he did not make use of it, and his sparing Saul's life was as great an instance of God's grace in him as the preserving of his own life was of God's providence over him. So just as God had preserved David from Saul's murder, murderous efforts, so too David withheld his hand from Saul. But what David did instead was he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, I've wondered about this scene. How in the world did he do this without Saul knowing? But God seems to have filed this in the need-to-know category, and you and I don't have enough clearance to understand what happened. But David cut off Saul's, a corner of Saul's robe compared to what David could have done and, and, and seemingly, at least in an earthly sense, could have been justified in doing. It seems harmless, but it was a symbolic act. Look back with me at 1 Samuel 15. The king's robe was a symbol of power. We see this back in 1 Samuel 15 as the prophet Samuel rebuked Saul for his hard-hearted disobedience to God. 
And in his distress, Saul tried to keep Samuel from leaving and grabbed his robe and a portion of the robe tore away. And Saul's holding the torn piece of the robe. And in verse 28, Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to, your, to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. In cutting the robe, David is cutting corners, in a sense. He's taking matters into his own hand. This tiny act was really, as Dale Ralph Davis says, it was a declaration of revolt against the king. David is there in the cave, and he begins to think about what he's done. Look at verse 5. Afterwards, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. The, the word there is his heart smote him. He wished that he hadn't done it. He was repentant. And we certainly could excuse what David did by saying, well, Saul's done so much worse to dishonor David. What David did was nothing in comparison, but we need to remember that God's standard of righteousness, of how we treat other people, is not contingent on how they treat us. Other people sinning against us does not give us right to sin against them. It's an absolute standard, and so that's why in verse 5, David's conscience smites him. Conscience is, is a fascinating thing. It's a bit like the warning light in your car. You can ignore the light, but it won't fix the car, and the problems are going to get worse. You can ignore your conscience, but if you do, you're headed into deep trouble. It's one of the chief differences between David and Saul. Saul has absolutely seared his conscience. Saul can do anything, it seems, without remorse. David is sensitive to God's law. Again, to quote Matthew Henry, it's a good thing to have a heart within us smiting us for sins that seem little. It's a sign that our conscience is awake and tender and will be the means of preventing greater sins. In other words, when we ignore conscience, it will lead us into greater and greater sin. This is a warning to all of us that to persist in unrepentant, hidden sin will hurt us. That's where Saul was. But David has a tender conscience. How do you build a tender conscience? If it's as good a thing as Matthew Henry says it is, how do we do it? We do it by what a good friend of mine calls keeping short accounts with the Lord. You think of going into a store in the old days and charging something to your account. Well, if you do it once, the account's about this long. But if you do it again and again and again without paying your bill, your account can get very, very, very long. And so to keep short accounts is to go and pay your bill quickly. To keep short accounts with the Lord is to repent, to confess our sins as soon as we see them, to turn from them. When we don't do that, our conscience begins to become seared. Our conscience grows numb. When we pile it down, when we burden it with sin upon sin upon sin. So if you wish to develop a Christian conscience, a tender conscience, keep short accounts with the Lord. Well, it was through this smiting of conscience that God's making clear to David that the end God ordains must be achieved by the means God approves. God's work must be done God's way. There's no cutting corners in obedience to God's will. 
Now, for most of us, we'd have let the story in right there. Saul would have kept going. David could have gone the other way, and that's the end of the story, at least till the next chapter. That's not what David does. And then this moves us into this next section, this plea for reconciliation. Verse 8, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And this is absolutely astounding. David is pursuing reconciliation with Saul. He, he doesn't desire. And he could have killed Saul just a moment ago. And there's many other times that he'd be able to kill Saul. But he doesn't desire it. He desires reconciliation. And he goes on to reason with Saul, and he bows before Saul, and he says to him, listen, Saul, I'm not a threat. You've got to stop listening to these bad counselors that are telling you that I am. I am not a threat, because consider what I could have done to you today. I could have killed you, and all I did was cut off the corner of your robe. I will not raise my hand against you. David helps us to understand how he could show such restraint against Saul. Look at verse 12. He's speaking to Saul, and this is blunt language. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, let me tell you what David's not saying. David's not saying, oh, well, do what you're going to do, Saul. I'll just, I won't worry about it. I'm going to let you walk all over me. He's saying here, I trust God, he's a just God, and he will judge you in his time for how you're treating me. David trusts God to judge Saul's wickedness. You know, that's something you can only do if you have a clean conscience. That's why Saul says here that out of the wicked comes wickedness. He's saying, I can be judged because I I haven't acted this way against you. So I can commit us to the judgment of God. David knows that if he had treated Saul equally wickedly, he too would have failed the test. He's committed the situation to the sovereignty of God, and he trusts God to judge rightly. David understood what Paul would write a thousand years later in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the secret to David being able to wait and even to pursue reconciliation. Rather than lifting his hand against Saul, he lifted his prayers up to the one who judges rightly. David frequently pleaded with God to judge wicked men. That's what we call the imprecatory prayers. And oftentimes today, we don't know what to do when we come to those imprecatory prayers. Let me show you just an example of David's imprecatory prayers. Psalm 54, starting at verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He'll return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. David's saying there, I have enemies hunting me down, and yet I can rest. I trust, God, that you will avenge all that they do to me. It's strong language, but he's committing vengeance to God. We need to learn to pray like David because if we don't learn how to commit vengeance to God, we will take vengeance ourselves. And so we ought to learn 
to pray that God would act justly towards those who are unjust. Maybe Saul's convicted by the scene. Maybe he feels guilty. Maybe he's big talk in David's absence, but now he's face to face with David and he changes his tune. We don't know, and it can be dangerous to assume the motives of our enemies, but I want you to see this third section, how Saul changes, and we call this the selfish request. Saul first acknowledges in response to David in verse 17, yeah, you have been good to me. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And then in verse 20, Saul affirms for David what everybody else already knew, which is David will be the next king. And what's sad about this is that his response, as genuine, as sincere, as humble as it seems, is ultimately superficial and short-lived. He gets the sob story out of the way, and now he gets down to business. David, I want something from you. Narcissism's a bear, isn't it? David, when you come to power, look out for my family. That's an incredible thing for him to say. He's already tried to kill his own son because his son is, so, is friends with David. Now, let me tell you, if I were David, I'd have said, you know what? I didn't kill you right there in the cave, but I'm about to kill you now, buddy. But David swore to Saul. Why? Because he'd already made the same covenant with Jonathan. You remember that? Jonathan, Saul's son, David's best friend. 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan said to him, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. They made that covenant. They renewed that covenant again and again. Saul's already, David's already made this promise. David grants Saul's audacious request, not because of Saul, but because of his covenant with Jonathan. And David was faithful to keep that covenant. Look over at 2 Samuel 9. It would be very easy for any of us to be bitter and angry at Saul. And David, when he assumed the throne, could have said, that name is never to be mentioned in my house. David kept his covenant with Jonathan. 2 Samuel 9, starting at verse 3. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to him? Ziba, that was a servant of David. Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that, I should, uh, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's a picture of what the Bible calls hesed covenant loyalty 
Moreover, this is one of the most wonderful pictures in the scriptures of the grace of, the, of David's greater son, Jesus Christ, towards us. And, and yet Christ's grace is far more amazing towards us because you and I have done worse to Jesus than anything Saul ever did to David. And yet he's shown immense kindness to us, not because we are worthy, but because he keeps his covenant. In fact, consider how Christ's kindness to us eclipses what David did for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was welcomed at the king's table, but he would always remain crippled. But Christ has taken our our brokenness, our spiritual crippledness. He takes it away and he makes us whole. How can he do that? How can he be so kind to us? How can he forgive our sin? Because Christ never once cut corners in obedience to his father. You know, we're going to come to points in David's life where he did cut corners, where, where David was not seeking first the kingdom. But the Lord Jesus never did. And because of of the Father's covenant love for Christ, he welcomes all who belong to Christ to his table, those of us who are worse than dead dogs, and he calls us his sons. That's a gift far greater than Mephibosheth ever received from David. How do we apply this text? Let me give you a few applications. First, If you have counselors and friends that tell you things that are unbiblical, don't listen to them. It's a simple point, but but David seems to think that part of the reason that Saul is so resolute in hunting him down is because he has counselors, he has friends who are telling him, David is out to get your kingdom. Now, these are, of course, people who are probably concerned about their own place in the kingdom. You and I need friends who will speak scriptural wisdom to us rather than pile on more of the world's foolishness. Second, never mistake God's providence for permission. David could have done what his men did and said, you know, look how Saul has been dropped into my lap. Clearly God wants me to kill him. You know, we're often guilty of that. I see this a lot with, with young singles who are lonely and they've prayed for a companion and they meet somebody and that person may not even be a believer and yet they think, God has sent this person to me. God is answering my prayers. The scriptures say we shouldn't be unequally yoked. It's as simple as that. It is not the will of God if it goes against the word of God, even if the providence of God makes it seem otherwise. Never mistake God's providence for permission. Third, the evidence of sincere repentance must be both the lips and the life. Sincere repentance takes place both in our lips and our life. Saul talks a good talk. We, we see that. David, you, you've repaid me with good. I've only repaid you with evil. He talks a good talk. You know what he's doing in the next chapter? He's hunting David again. The evidence of God's work in a person's heart is not whether they can master God's speak. 
but whether or not they have been mastered by God. It's a matter of both our lips and our life. And time proved that Saul's repentance was insincere. Final application. Beloved, we don't need to cut corners. Daily, you and I are faced with decisions either to take matters into our own hands, we can try to prove ourselves smarter than God, or we can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust that all these things, whatever it is that preoccupies us, God will take care of. If you are in Christ, then you can trust God's heart for you, and no matter what the providence of God looks like at the moment, you can trust that he is working for good. We don't need to cut corners. David had to wait years for the kingdom. In that time, David didn't realize it, but God was refining and testing and training him to become king. Every day for you and me is a stewardship from God. And our duty is not to be pragmatic and cut corners, but to be faithful with what he's entrusted to us. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's take our hymnals and sing those words right now. Hymn number 128, God moves.